0: So, a couple of weeks ago, the New York Times featured an editorial by Dr. Esau McCauley, who is a professor of New Testament at Wheaton College in Illinois. And he was writing on his experiences of Easter Sunday growing up in the black church in the South. And he says that Easter Sunday in the black church in the South was a day when everybody came to church wearing their absolute best outfits possible. He said, his words, The yellow and red dresses and dark suits set against the black and brown bodies of my church were a thing to behold. The hats of grandmothers and deacons' wives jostled with one another for attention. Then he tells of a special Easter Sunday when his mother, though they were poor, his mother had been able to cobble together enough money to buy him a brand new three-piece navy blue suit and a clip-on tie. Yay for clip-on ties. He says this, I thought I had joined the elect when I showed up fresh and clean for Sunday service. And then he adds, The feeling didn't last long. During a song, a woman sitting next to me with one of the aforementioned hats got excited. Our tradition called it catching the Holy Ghost. In her ecstatic state, she kicked out, hit me in the leg, and ripped a hole in my brand new pants. That Sunday introduced me to the two Easter's that struggle alongside each other. One is linked closely to the celebration of spring and the possibility of new beginnings, it is the show that the church can be on Easter. The other deals with the disturbing prospect that God is present with us. His power breaks out and unsettles the world. His power breaks out and unsettles the world in the resurrection of Jesus. And Maybe it's strange for some of us to think of the resurrection as unsettling, because we've been in this context so much, we rejoice when it happens. But I think he has a point. He then dives into this uh, passage from Mark 16 on the, Mark's account of the resurrection. It's the account that we had read on Easter Sunday. And you may have noticed that the end of that uh, passage has a, a strange ending to it... ...that seems, again, not to fit too well. In Mark 16, after, after the women have gone to the tomb... ...and they have seen the stone rolled away... ...and a man in white has said, he's not here, he has risen... This is how Mark concludes the resurrection story. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Trembling, bewildered, afraid. Not, not overjoyed, not excited the way we might expect it. Trembling, bewildered, afraid. These are strange words for us, perhaps. And then Esau Macaulay begins to work through that and what that could mean for us as he reflects on why they were silent as well. They said nothing to anyone. Why they were afraid. Why they were bewildered. And he says this. The terrifying prospect of Easter is that God called these women to return to the same world that crucified Jesus with a very dangerous gift, hope in the power of God the unending reservoir of forgiveness and an abundance of love. It makes them seem like fools. Who could believe such a thing? Who could believe such a thing indeed? When we get a hold of that hope, and we're going to talk a bit about that hope as the morning progresses, a few things to do first, but when we get a hold of that hope, it has the power to do something for us in our lives, as it did in the church we're going to read about. And it speaks to, once again, our ECC touchstone of presence. That we are sent into the world as agents of change and redemption. We are sent into the world as agents of change and redemption. This is where the ministry of that 97% of our waking hours spent spent outside of church and church. This is where it takes place. This is is presence in the 97%. We become the presence of God uh, for people. The Apostle Paul wrote the letter to the Colossians that you just heard read uh, a few minutes ago, or part of it, and what we know about the Apostle Paul, of many things, is in Acts chapter uh, 19, Paul gets, he's in Ephesus, which is a city about 100 miles from Colossae, or Colossae, tomato, tomato, I don't know how you say it. And uh, he is there, and he's he's, he's, he's frustrated that the the Jewish people are rejecting the gospel, so he goes to a lecture hall, a secular lecture hall, and begins to lecture every day and to teach about the good news of Jesus. This is what Acts 19.10 says about that. This went on for two years, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Paul has a co-worker. Named Epaphras. We don't know much about him, but he is from Colossae. He is from the city where the Colossians live. It's possible, and we don't know, it's possible that Epaphras came to Ephesus during this two-year period and heard Paul lecturing in the lecture hall and came to faith in Christ at that point. Either way, Paul sends him to his hometown as a representative, and it is through Epaphras' ministry that people in Colossae become Christians. You hear about it in the last or one of the last verses of a passage. You learned it, Paul says, you learned the gospel message from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf. We know that there was a sizable population of Jewish people in Colossae, we, we, uh, but we believe that most of the people that came to Christ through Epaphras' ministry and others were not Jews, but Gentiles, Greeks. We know this in part because of uh, something, a few things that are found in the letter to the Colossians. Uh, as well, later on in chapter 1, we read this. Once you, you who are reading this letter, you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. This is not, he's not talking about Jewish people here. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. And so Paul is writing this letter to the Colossian church, probably because, well, actually we know this part, Epaphras came and told him what was going on in the church. Most of the things there are going well in the church in Colossae, but there is apparently some false teaching that is attractive, has worked its way into uh, the church. We don't ever know from reading Colossians exactly what that false teaching was, uh, and it doesn't really matter because the passage that we're looking at this morning, Paul is not talking about that yet. He is talking about the good things that are happening uh, in spite of whatever crisis is going on. And he's opening the letter in the traditional form of ancient letters with a section on thanksgiving. And in that, he talks about the good that's happening. So, to our passage. Colossians 1, verses 3 through 6. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people. The faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you through Epaphras again. We're going to find out in this passage that Paul is thankful for two things, and they're going to tell us a lot about what is going on and how, that, how, how the gospel can impact us as well. Paul is thankful, first of all, that they have responded to the gospel, and their faith has overflowed in their love for one another. They have received the good news about Jesus, they have believed it with all their hearts, and that has transformed their relationships, and they, as a community, as sisters and brothers in Christ, love each other Well, And this ties back to last week's passage. The idea that if we, as sisters and brothers in Christ, love one another well, that is probably our best tool in the evangelistic toolkit. That speaks the word of the gospel to the community around us. So he is thankful that they have responded to the gospel, and their faith is overflowed in their love for one another. But where does this energy come from? What drives this faith and love? It's in the text. The faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven. The faith and love spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven. That NIV is being a little poetic there. It really just says because of the hope. But either way, it comes out of the hope that they have. And this hope is not an unfounded hope. This hope is not a, I wish this were so. This is a certain hope. This is a, a certainty in the goodness of the future. And based on that hope that they have in Christ Jesus and where God is taking all things, they have faith and they have love for one another. Paul continues. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. So Paul is thankful that they have responded to the gospel and that their faith has overflowed in their love for one another, and he is thankful for the gospel's universal reach and effectiveness. This gospel, this good news about Jesus has legs. It has energy. It has power. You may think you lead somebody to Jesus. It wasn't you. It was the gospel that led people to Jesus. You just happen to be willing to cooperate with it. This gospel has power. This gospel is attached to the hope of God's future. The hope that God has for us, kept in heaven, kept safe for us. The hope we have in Christ is founded on what has been done in the past, and it is rooted in what will happen in the future. The hope we have in Christ is founded on what has been done in the past and rooted in what will happen in the future. James Brian Smith in The Good and Beautiful Community quotes from uh, John Zasoulis, who is a well-known, perhaps one of the most influential Eastern Orthodox scholars in the, in the world today, and he says this. <clears throat> the Christian community has its roots in the future and its branches in the present. And that future is bright, certain, and unshakable because of Jesus and his finished work. Hope is the bridge from the future into the present, and the branches of that hope Our faith and love. The hope we have in Christ. The hope we have in Christ is founded on what has been done for us in the past and it is rooted in what will happen in the future. And this hope, which shapes our identity and who we are, because you can't get to the place where you share your faith until you are shaped, until you know who you are, it shapes our identity in four parts. First of all, Our death in the death of Christ. When Christ died, we died with him. When Christ died, we died with him. Paul says this in Colossians 3.3. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now I know that sounds like bad news that we have died, but it's not. It's good news because what we died to was sin. Our enslavement to sin and judgment. We died to our old way of life and because we have died, something new is being born as well. Colossians. What is this? 212, three, three. Sorry, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith, in working of God, in the working of God who raised him from the dead. You were raised with him. If we died with him, we were also raised with him. So our identity. Second part is that we have our life in Christ's resurrection. If we have died, we have been raised. Colossians 3.1, since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Not only have we died with Christ or shared in Christ's death, not only have we shared in Christ's resurrection, we share in Christ's ascension. Forty days after the resurrection, Jesus ascends to the Father, and we share in that. And he is now seated next to the Father, and our lives are hidden in him. We are there with him. And so the third part of our identity, our ascension with Christ, we are seated with him. We have died with him, we have been raised with him, we are seated with him, Colossians 3, 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. One day he will appear, one day he will return, and we will appear with him. We have been with him in his death, we have been with him in his resurrection, we have been with him in his ascension... And we are with him in his return. And that part of our identity is about our ultimate healing and justice when Christ returns. A four-part story of our hope and our identity. Once again, I can do no better than to quote from uh, Jim Smith. The final part of the story has not yet occurred. All the other three have. The church proclaims Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. The return of Jesus is the promise of ultimate healing and justice. All of the wrongs will be made right. All of the pain will end. And our joy will be made complete when Jesus comes in final victory. That hope binds the Christian community together as we await the final consummation of this divine conspiracy. Our hope is based on what has happened in the past and what will happen in the future. What Christ has done for us, what Christ is doing for us, and where Christ is taking all things. And so the good news comes from our liturgy sometimes that we use in communion. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. And because we say it sometimes in communion, all of us together, let's do that together, shall we? Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again because of these four parts of our identity this four part hope that we have we can be like the colossian church that that hope out of that hope will spring forth faith and love love for one another love for our neighbors and we can be the presence of christ in our worlds among our families and our neighborhoods and our community in the city we can be those who are sent into the world who send one another into the world as agents of change and redemption. There are two ways to share our faith. We can share it with our words and we can share it with our lives. We can share it with our words and we can share it with our lives. But here's the thing that we have to come to grips with. We can choose whether or not we're sharing our faith with our words. We can decide now's not the right time or I'm too frightened or, or whatever. We can decide I'm not gonna say anything about what I really believe here. I'm afraid I'll be rejected. We can choose not to use our words. But we cannot choose not to use our life, because we're always living. So the truth of the matter is, we are always sharing our faith in how we live our lives. We are always, always, always sharing our faith in how we live our lives. We are either sharing, sharing it well, or we are sharing it poorly, but we are always sharing our faith. If we have come to know Jesus, if we are seeking to follow Jesus, if we are trying to pursue God's purposes in the world, If we are learning to love one another as sisters and brothers in Christ and our neighbors as ourselves. If we are, as the prophet Micah said, if we are seeking to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with God, then I would bet that we are sharing our faith well in how we live our lives. If we are not doing these things, if we are choosing not to love our sisters and brothers in Christ, if we're not very good at loving our neighbors, if we're not doing justice and loving mercy, walking humbly with God, then we're sharing it poorly but we are always sharing our faith in how we live. And here's the challenge. The only way you can fix how you share your faith and how you live is about who you are. I can choose to speak my words of the gospel to someone, but you can only fake it so long in how you live your life. How are we going to live our lives? And if you get to that, it's not a question about sharing your faith. It's not what do you do to share your faith? That's not the primary question. The primary question is a question about identity. Who am I? Who are you? The first and primary question when we talk about what it means to be a hopeful community, when we talk about what it means to be so uh, attached to that hope that is set aside for us, that certainty that goodness that it bubbles up in out of in faith and love for one another and for our neighbors the primary question has to be, who am I? Am I one who is allowing that hope to transform me or not? Am I on the pathway toward Christiformity, having the the very nature of Christ formed in me, fleshed out of me, or am I sitting by the road plucking blueberries? Right? Are are we content merely to be a well-dressed person in our Sunday best sitting in a pew... Or has the Holy Ghost broken out next to us, kicked us in the leg, and torn a hole in our outfit? Has the Holy Ghost unsettled us? Who are you? In case it's not clear, you don't want to be the person just sitting in a pew in your Sunday best. You want to be the person who is interacting with the Holy Spirit broken out among us. Because that's where the power comes from. It does not come from following certain steps of evangelism. It comes from who we are, and then we're able to share our faith. I'm convinced that when we figure out this truth, when we begin to become more fully the people God intends us to become, we will get better, we will be empowered, we will be remotivated. we will be energized to share our faith in words and in actions. We will be able to be the presence of God. We will be like Jesus in the world, as we said last week. Because the truth of the matter is, friends, we are the ones we've been waiting for. We are the ones we've been waiting for. And we are an answer to our own prayers. It's all about who we are becoming. Not only can we be an answer to our own prayers, but I believe we can be an answer to the prayer of Jesus in John 17. And when we are becoming the kind of people Jesus wants us to become, when we are so sold out on the hope that God has kept in heaven for us, when we know that to be truer than anything else in the world, and it changes our lives, we can become a community of people, tapping back into last week, who demonstrate the kingdom of God in our midst. And there are probably several places we could go where I could give you a picture of what that might look like, but I'm going to go to Romans 12 and read most of Romans 12, verses 9 through 21, not all of it. Paul says this. This is a picture of what it might look like. He's telling us what to do. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Skipping down to the last verse. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. A picture of what it would be, what it would look like to become, as Martin Luther King said, the beloved community. A people who others will look at and go, ah. They have something. They're the real deal. Their life speaks of it more loudly than their words speak of it. How are we to respond to this good news? That Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. Well, it's it's not meant to be a guilt trip again. It's meant to be an invitation. And the invitation is to be and to bring the good news of Jesus wherever we are. Of course, it starts with who we are. But the invitation is that we would be good news and that would bring good news. So a few ideas for a response. A few weeks ago, about a month ago, we invited you to be a part of the BLESS initiative. And in this sanctuary and online, we offer you the chance to go to a, a website and to fill out your name, your email address, and to list four or five people that you know in your life and your relationships who do, have not yet come to know Christ and to commit to praying for them in the coming year. So I want to urge you to continue to do that. The BLESS initiative, by the way, the B stands for begin with prayer. L is, and that is what we did with that. We, we committed to pray for these people, and we hope we continue to do that. Listen with care is the L. Listen to people's stories. Listen to their hopes, their dreams, their disappointments, their pain. Eat together. Everybody can do that. Fellowship around food, the power of table fellowship, whether it's a cup of coffee or a meal, eat together with, the, with those you're praying for. This doesn't mean, oh, I'm going to eat with someone. Eat with those you're praying for. Serve them in love, big and small acts. Serve them. Love them in practical ways. And then when the time is right, when there's opportunity, when you sense the Spirit giving you the words or nudging you to do it, you share your story. You don't have to share a perfect theological treatise on what God has accomplished in Christ. You only have to share what Christ has meant to you. Bless one another. If you have not done that, if you weren't here or you didn't do it that day, right now you can zoom your phone's uh, camera in on that QR code and it will take you to a web page. And I want you to take it and go, uh, let it go with you or or do it here in the service, whatever you'd like, and fill that out. They'll send you an email reminding you of who you signed up to pray for. They'll even give you a few prayers to get you started on how to do it. This is also in the Bible App Live event. Uh, There's a link there to it as well. And Something we did a few years ago was uh, the Bless Every Home initiative, which is an interactive map that you can go to. It will show you your neighbors, uh, and you can uh, pray for them. You can say, I want to pray for these neighbors around where I live, and it will send you notifications in email, or now there's an app. You can have it sent to your phone, and you can tell it how often you want to get the reminder to pray for your neighbors. Also, there is a, a link for that in the Bible app, too. So I want us to consider how we might respond as people who are trying to bless our neighbors, who are living into the hope that is promised to us and allowing that hope to overflow in our lives with faith and love. I want you to listen to the closing words of Esau Macaulay in that editorial. He says, To listen to the plans of some, after the pandemic, we are returning to a world of parties and rejoicing. This is true. Parties have their place. Let us not close all paths to happiness, but we are also returning to a world of hatred, cruelty, division, and a thirst for power that was never quarantined. This period under pressure has freshly thrown into relief the fissures in the American experiment. As we leave the tombs of quarantine, a return to normal would be a disaster unless we recognize that we are going back to a world desperately in need of healing. For me, the source of that healing is an empty tomb in Jerusalem. The work that Jesus left his followers to do includes showing compassion and forgiveness and contending for a just society. It involves the ever-present offer for an all to begin again. The weight of this work fills me with a terrifying fear, especially in light of those who have done great evil in his name. Who is worthy of such a task? Like the women, the scope of it leaves me too often with a stunned silence. We who know the power of the resurrection, we who know the hope that we have and what Christ has done, is doing, and will do one day, we are called to enter into the world, as Pope John Paul II put it, as Easter people. Easter people. People who know the resurrection and in whom the resurrection lives out into the world. So, let this be a challenge for all of us. First, that we know who we are becoming. And then out of that, that we would go forth into the world. That we would be the presence of God. That we would love one another so well, love our neighbors so well. And that we would be the presence of God. That we would walk humbly with God. That we would do justice and love mercy. That we would pray for the people in our lives who do not yet know Christ. And when the time comes, we would find the boldness to share our faith. To share our faith and to be like Jesus in the world. Would you pray with me as we close? Good and gracious God, we thank you this day for the hope that we have in the work that you have done in Christ Jesus and the work you are continuing to do and the promise of the hope for the future that you have given us, that you have kept safe for us. Lord, we thank you for that hope. And I pray for all of us here, wherever we are in our relationship with you, that we would know that hope in a fresh way, that we would know the power of your resurrection pulsing through our bodies, that we would know, God, where we are headed and who we are. And if we are not there yet, Lord, give us the boldness and the courage and the humility to admit that we are not there yet, that we would cry out to you, that you would save us and take us on this journey. In all these things, God, we pray that in us and through us, as this community, you would accomplish your purposes in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our city, in our world. And may you receive all the glory, all the honor, in Jesus' name. Amen.